Matthew 16, starting in verse 1. It says, The Pharisees also, with the Sadducees, came, and tempting, desired him that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said unto them, When it is evening, ye say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and lowering. O ye hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky, but can you not discern the signs of the times? A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given unto it, but the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. Let's pray for just for a moment. Lord, as we look at this passage and just go into your word, help us to um, understand it better, Lord. Uh, help me to explain some things right and proper that it would be better understood, Lord. And I just pray for that you would help us to grow as we look into your word this morning. I ask your blessing on it in Christ's name. I look at this, and I, I've always liked this passage. Um, if you know me, I, I used to guide and teach canoeing and dog sledding and all these outdoor things. And camping was the, the one thing in my life that I absolutely loved doing. And so being outdoors and looking up at the sky was a, a regular part of my life in those early years of my adulthood and some of the courses that we took we would um we me and jen both did these things and we take courses to get certified and we we're canoe tripping she was a canoe tripping instructor i was a canoe trip leader and part of that course is learning weather <laughs> learning to look at not look at my phone at the app at what it says is coming but when i'm in the middle of a wilderness situation i can look at the sky and know what might be laying ahead for me. I remember one canoe trip I was on, and if you've ever been on a canoe trip, you know that the wind is never at your back when you're on a canoe trip. <laughs> but I had two days straight of a tailwind, and I was heading north, which meant I had a south wind coming behind me. And I knew that I was in for a storm, and I just didn't know when. And it seems that the longer you have that south wind coming at you in the middle of summer, the fiercer that storm ends up being. And we ended up, we camped on this island, and it was a large group, and we had probably as many canoes as pews sitting here. Brought up on shore, turned upside down, laid out safely from the water. And I could see a straight line of cloud in the sky, and I literally watched a wall of wind come across that lake and just nail us. And every one of those canoes was tossed in the wind. The boys' tents were laid flat. <laughs> and it was one of the strongest storms I've ever experienced. But I knew it was coming <laughs> because I was trained to watch the sky and the wind patterns and these things that take place. And we can what Jesus is pointing to these Pharisees. This is, you know the weather. You know if you're going to be in the field tomorrow or not based on what the sky did 
this evening or in the morning. And we can look at these things and we can discern what's going on around us and looking at the signs to determine those things. And so Jesus takes this and he says, Oh, ye hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. And what an admonition, right? And we've looked at... We've, Jesus had this conversation, I don't know how many times with the Pharisees. And we've looked at it before, and I've, he points. He says, the only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. And we've gone and looked at Jonah before, during the same conversation earlier in this book. And so, like this just keeps coming up, right? And Jesus gives the same answer each time. And so we think of Jonah and what took place there. And it's that three days and three nights in the belly of the whale and being spit back out, that picture of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. That's the picture that that story of Jonah gives. But I think there's something more in that story of Jonah is God's putting in Jonah's heart to go and preach to this people of Nineveh. Warn them of the destruction that's to come. And that's exactly what Christ did here. He came to these people and he's shouting the warning. Destruction is coming. You need to turn. You need to repent. You need to trust in him. And we, again, show that same message. Proclaim that to the people of our city. You need Christ. You need to turn from your sin. And that's that sign of Jonah. And the repentance that took place in that city. That wasn't a Jewish city. This was a Gentile city that God sent a Jewish prophet to go and preach to. It's a picture of us in the church and God's grace being extended to us. I'm going to look a little bit at this statement of discerning the signs of the times and what that means to us because we also need to be able to discern the signs of the times if you want to follow with me I'm going to turn to Second Timothy chapter 3 just for a moment here Second Timothy chapter 3 chapter gives us some of the signs of the times and starting in verse 1 he says this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come for men shall be lovers of the most, the, their own selves covetous boasters proud blasphemers disobedient to parents 
unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. Now, this begins with the statement, in the last days, perilous times shall come. And so this is, this is as it, that phrase goes, signs of the times. And I've been hearing that phrase my entire life. And we've been pointing to these things my entire life. And interesting, I, I look at, um, I don't read his sermons, but I, I look at lots of quotes from preachers like Charles Spurgeon. And Charles Spurgeon lived in the 1800s. He was preaching from, I don't remember what the exact years, but he died in 1892. And so for the 40, almost 40 years, 30-some years prior to that is his time of preaching. This is 150 years ago that we're talking. And when you read some of the quotes from Charles Spurgeon, as he's describing the church in his day, as he's describing the world in his day, you would swear he was living in 2021. <laughs> he saw the exact same things that we see today taking place in the world around him. He saw the decay of the church. He saw the decay of doctrine and people standing on the word and being true to God. And just having, as it describes here, a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. I just saw uh, the result of a study that said that 60% of professing Christians don't believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to get to heaven. I don't know how you can be a professing Christian and not believe that. Because that is the definition of a Christian. Which I think is why Eduardo last week pointed to being called a disciple of Jesus Christ rather than just being called a Christian because it's a little bit more direct in its meaning. And you deny the power thereof. Jesus Christ is the power of the gospel. They have a form of godliness, but they don't have the power of it, the, the true gospel, the true salvation that's offered through Christ. You look at these descriptions. Verse 2 says, lovers of their own selves. What do you see on social media? I don't see a lot of... I, I don't Instagram and, and all that, but, but what is the primary thing that gets posted is Pictures, pictures of me, right? <laughs> Selfies. Where, how long has the word selfie existed in the world? <laughs> we are living in a day when self is our primary thing. We post pictures of our best self, though, right? We use filters and we make sure that we get the right angle so my double chin isn't showing. And We're very consumed with what we look like. 
and making sure others see us in the best light possible. We're lovers of our own selves as a society. And you think of covetous is that next word in this list. And social media does, goes a long ways to enforcing our covetousness because we like to present the best that we have for people to see. And whether that's the fancy meal, how many, I can't imagine why people take a picture of their plate before they eat and then feel that the rest of us need to see that, but, but it's common. But we take pictures of our home in its best state. We take pictures of our nicest things. If we buy something new, we take a picture of it and post it on social media to make sure everybody knows of the nice things that I have. And it promotes a culture of coveting. It makes me want the things that you have. And if you look into that, those nice things that people have are rarely what they appear. <laughs> um, and e even before social media, there are many items that we own that become status symbols. And our, our cars are a prime example of that. And if you want to present an image of being wealthy, you have to own a certain type of car. And you know, that's an interesting thing because I, as a mechanic and as a body man, I'm capable of fixing up any wreck and putting it on the road and having it look good and drive it. And along the way, I, as, a, as a mechanic, I've driven many people's cars and I drove this one customer's BMW. I'm like, man, that's a nice car. <laughs> it's not just the name, it's actually a very nice car to drive. I've driven some other higher end cars and didn't really care for them, but that BMW was nice. And when I started with the mission, I said something to Jack and Penny one day. I said, so would it be a bad if we were driving a BMW? <laughs> would that look bad as a missionary to, for us to drive? Yes. And they said, yes. And I'm like, but my BMW wouldn't be a status symbol. It wouldn't be that I've spent a pile of money. I would have been at a scrapyard and found some thing that had been rolled over or smashed up and hammered that thing straight and driving the car that I actually enjoy driving for a very small fraction of what that car would normally be worth. But the image is wrong, right? And so, and you can say that, you say like, would it be wrong for me to drive a BMW? And the answer is yes. Like, because of the, the image that goes into people's minds over that thing, right? It's not that there's anything wrong with me driving that, but it's, it's the image and what people think. And so we, we under, have that understanding. We're very covetous and it ties exactly in with the very next word, boasters. If I want that image, I need to have the BMW and I'm boasting of my wealth or my position and all these different things. And we're very, our society has made this, like it's just an integral part of our society, right? And with social media, it has just kind of blossomed and becomes that much more pronounced. We could go through the list and I, I don't need to, to go through the list. We can look at every one of these words and, and look at around us and see that every one of these 
is a perfect description of our world. We see the signs of the times all around us. I just want to actually write this down. Okay. Anyway, maybe I'm not going to turn to it then. Um, I don't know how many times listening to preaching over this past year, year and a half, that I've heard a pastor turn to Revelation 13. And before about a year and a half ago, I don't think if you told me to turn to Revelation 13 that I could have told you exactly what I was going to find in that chapter. But today, I can tell you that that's the mark of the beast, is, go is what you're going to find when you read that chapter. And it's interesting that this is such a commonly preached on passage these days, is because people are looking and thinking, I'm seeing the signs of the times. And without getting into anything about it specifically, but I look at the thing that's being debated right at the moment is having some form of passport, some form of ID that I need to carry to get into certain stores. And it's the beginning of preparing our minds to have to show some proof of a mark, right, a mark of the beast, to buy and sell. And I believe that's what, it, there's so many things in our, our society and people, Christians have looked through the 20th century, like as different things developed with technology. And we've mentioned before, like the, the social insurance number in Canada, sin number, right? <laughs> and people were sure that this was a, the start of the mark of the beast because it's this identification thing. And then we get into credit cards and this, the tap system on credit cards. And Amazon now has us, if you go to their physical stores, you can scan your palm. You can have that scan and it links to your credit card. Yeah, I still use a credit card. I tap. I, I like the tap <laughs> because it's easy. And But we realize that all of these things are preparing people's minds to make it easy for us to accept something like the mark of the beast. I don't... The mark of the beast isn't anything to do with what's going on in our world. The Mark of the Beast is about um, the Antichrist and forcing the world to bow and worship the Antichrist. But all these things that take place leading up to that time is certainly a preparation to make that easier to cause people to be not careful, not even thinking about the next step. It was not, it's not that big of a, a step. And how many people have I heard say, well, I wasn't going to take this, but I want to go travel. I want to go to restaurants. I want to be able to do. And so they do what they weren't going to do because they want to be able to do these other things. Um, 
And that's just the, the mentality that needs to be created for that mark of the beast to actually be effective in its goal. And anyway, these are things that we can look at as signs of the time. They're pointing us that we're living in a day that the Bible describes as the last days. Interesting, and I think this we need to turn to 2 Peter 3 to get some context of this. Because as I said, preachers have been preaching this exact message for hundreds of years, maybe almost 2,000 years. <laughs> preachers have been preaching this. They've been looking at these same verses that we're looking at this morning, seeing the world around them, fulfilling those verses. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 says, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. And that's, right, that's where we're at today. And I think the church is falling into this category. There's a lot of doctrine being promoted that doesn't believe in the end times the way that we see Revelation spell it out. They don't, many churches, many preachers don't preach that there's a rapture. They don't preach that there's going to be a literal seven-year tribulation. They don't preach that Christ returns at the end of that tribulation period. Because it's been... 2,000 years. Like they're scoffing at those doctrines at this time. Where's the promise of his coming? And they come up with other ideas of how this is going to play out in the end. But there's an answer in this same passage. Verse 8 gives some context to the answer. It says, Beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Time doesn't mean to God what it means to us. A thousand years, or two thousand years, it's just like the passing of a couple of days. And how'd your week go? <laughs> Can you remember <laughs> what happened two days ago? Like, our time flies, right? And that's what it's like. God's view of time is not like our view of time. Verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's ready and I think God has been ready for a very long time. But God's patience and concern for each soul that will turn to him. And he's waiting and prolonging these last days for that purpose. And I, I'm sure that's why people can stand today where's the promise of his coming? Well, 
He's waiting. He's not willing that any should perish. He's not slack concerning his promise, but he's long-suffering. He's putting up with us and all of our stupidity and waiting for us to, to turn to him. If we look at Luke 17, Jesus is dealing with similar, similar things once again. Pharisees coming and asking questions, demanding answers, right? So Luke 17, starting verse 20, it says, And when he was demanded of the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation, neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. And he said unto the disciples, the days will come when ye shall desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and ye shall not see it. And this has to be referring to his second coming because he's already standing there in front of them, right? And they shall say to you, see here or see there, go not after them and nor follow them. For as the lightning that lighteneth out of the one part under heaven shineth unto the other part under heaven. So shall also the Son of Man be in his day. But first must he suffer many things and be rejected of this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be also in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, and they drank, they married wives. They were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat and they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. What a, when you, you start to think about the destruction that took place, the flood of Noah, and on Sodom and Gomorrah with Lot being destroyed by fire, he says that's exactly what it's going to be like at the second coming. People are just going to be going about their day as if nothing is happening because they're not looking at God's word, seeing that what's going on around them is pointing them to that. Matthew 24, Jesus gives some more clues of the signs of the times, if you want to put it that way. Matthew 24, starting in verse 3, says, And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? The disciples were asking, looking for the signs of the times, right? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed 
that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many, and you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise, and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. There's signs given here. Wars, rumors of wars, famines, pestilence, earthquakes. There's a friend on Facebook that likes to post, I don't know what the site is, but something that shows all the earthquakes monitoring all around the earth. And man, now I think maybe we're just, the technology makes us more aware of it, but there's a lot going on out there. Um, you listen to the news, like I've mentioned a couple of times, there was very recently one up just off the coast of um, Alaska. There was very recently a very destructive one in Haiti again. And, you know, just thinking back in the last 10 years or so, the destruction of some of the earthquakes, the one in um, J Japan and, and these different things. And like there has been, and Haiti had another destructive one not that long ago. There's a lot of destruction from earthquakes. Look around our world right now. There is a lot of famine, a lot of drought and fire, things going on that match these descriptions. And if you want to look at coronavirus as pestilences, <laughs> there's one. But there's many other things going on as well. There are things going on that match the descriptions in the Bible of the signs of the last days. So what do we do? How do we live our life in light of those things? I want to turn one last place with me is Luke chapter 12. Our response isn't to hole up, hide, and wait. <laughs> That's not the answer. It's not to live in fear. Luke 12, starting in verse 35. Says, let your loins be girded about and your lights burning, and ye yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. 
and he shall come in the second watch. Or sorry, and if he shall come in the second watch, or come in the third watch, and find them so, blessed are those servants. And this know that if the good man of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not have suffered his house to be broken through. Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when ye think not. Then Peter said unto him, Lord, speakest thou this parable unto us, or even to all? And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward, whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household, to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant, whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Of a truth I say unto you, that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. But, and if that servant say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to beat the men servants and maidservants, and to eat and drink and to be drunken, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, and at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in sunder, and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not, and did commit things worthy of stripes, shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. Now, a little bit of context the application of this is more directly to the tribulation and the people going through the tribulation and the actual second coming, the return and the establishment of the millennial reign of Christ. But the principle holds true to the church in what's being described here in being ready, living a life prepared for this Christ's return, living as if his return might happen now, or now, or now, or 10 minutes from now, or an hour from now. At any moment, I should always be prepared to face my Lord. And if I live my life living a life of sin and disregarding his word and the life that he described that I ought to be living in his name, man, can you, I'd hate to be, can you imagine being in the midst of some swearing, yelling fight with your wife <laughs> at the moment of the rapture? <laughs> Wouldn't that be a miserable time? <laughs> Bad timing, right? Well, if God has to wait for every believer to not be committing some sin for him to return, I think we have a long ways to go. <laughs> we need to, need to think like that. And that's exactly what he's describing here. Is we think, and we've talked about this right through, of God's not slack concerning his promise. And we start to get complacent. It's not going to happen. Right? We, we've still got time. And we don't live a life as if the return is imminent. And we need to live a life as if his return is imminent. 
And so that's living a, a life of holiness to the best of our ability, but it's living a life that proclaims the gospel to as many people as we possibly can preach the gospel to. That needs to be our motivation to do that, to reach the lost, to fulfill God is not slack concerning his promise because he was, wants more souls to be saved. And how are they going to hear without a preacher? And that's not, that's not me, that's each of you preaching, speaking the word, telling others about their sin and the solution to it of Christ that loved them so much that he died to take that payment for their sin that they could have eternal life through simply believing in him. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for that sacrifice. Thank you that salvation is such a simple thing that it's not dependent on me accomplishing anything, but quite the opposite of me realizing that I cannot accomplish and just trusting, believing that it's all what Christ did for me. Lord, we're looking forward to eternity with you. We're looking forward to your second coming. And we look around the world and we see signs that point that direction, Lord. Help us to be prepared. Help us to be living the life that you describe in your word that we ought to be living when that moment comes. Help us to do that, Lord. Strengthen us. We pray this in Christ's name.